beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a world that it seems that few are being held accountable for their immoral acts and unjust dealings. We not only think of our president and family, we think of other elected officials and those perhaps who escape justice because of these inequalities that we experience in our world. It seems that for decades people have witnessed justice miscarry. And yet we know, I think at the root of our being, that there, there must be, at least at some point in time, when justice is fully accomplished. And I think especially for us who have been the recipients, and I think the youngest children here and all of us have been the recipients of the Word of God, which speaks of this justice that is a very part of the character and being of the Creator God who we believe exists. As a young man growing up, a young boy growing up in the church, I had a sense of this justice. I believed what was written, at least outwardly, and to such an extent I would at times shake in my shoes because I knew that in the East, one day, he's coming. And then I knew the end of that as well. I had believed the lie that, well, if my name is in the book, it's in the book, nothing can change it, and so I might as well live in the sins that had come upon me and I'd engaged in, because that's what seemed to please me, and yet never being able to shake the reality that justice, Jesus, is coming. And until I heard the gospel, I lived in fear. Maybe that's you still today. We all know that we're going to appear before uh, the judgment seat of God. And so I ask us for an hour of our lives to just take this moment and to contemplate and to reflect and to think about What does that really mean? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for our loved ones? I don't think we can go wrong in the the face of eternity that shall never end to pause and consider what God is saying to us at moments like this. And I think there's biblical reasons too to do this. I want to give you three. I'm sure there are many more. Number one, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I suspect there are unbelieving people. They may believe, as I did as a young man, this is true, but have never submitted to and never received the gospel in your hearts to salvation, even though you hold these truths to be true. And Paul says, I know. I've experienced something of what it is to stand before this judgment seat. I can't imagine, but him being blind on Damascus Road understood something of what it meant to stand before a holy, righteous God. And knowing that, he says, we persuade men. God is pleased even through the message of judgment in pending judgment to bring sinners to repentance. Oh, what a wonderful thing if it would be the glories of the gospel that would draw our hearts and love to him. That happens. He uses that means, but he also uses the means of discovering to us the reality of this judgment to come, that we would flee as Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress did for his life. There's a story told of 
a prisoner in death row in England, and a priest was called to minister to him on his last day of his life. He was going to be hung at the gallows. And the priest came to him and opened his Bible and began reading something or other, talking about what came after life and would either go to heaven or to hell. And he was talking in a calm and casual way. And the, the prisoner stopped him and he said, do you really believe what you're telling me? If I believed what you were telling me, I would crawl on my hands and knees over burning coals the length and breadth of England to stop one soul from going there. What a blessing it would be if the terror of the Lord, so to speak, and of His coming judgment would cause and persuade you who are outside of Christ to flee to Him who is ready to receive sinners today with pardon. A second reason I think it's good for us to remind ourselves is that what I mentioned in the introduction already is it doesn't seem like justice is done now, is accomplished now. There are many who have been offended, hurt, who are suffering today, in our world, in our families. Maybe you have had someone offend you, has caused you suffering, and justice is is delayed or is not happening. There are a lot of people who are guilty in this world and yet seem to prosper. That was laying on the heart of the psalmist. He was jealous of the wicked because they seemed to prosper. No justice was being done, and yet he came to the house of God, and then everything was made plain. And he said, I was a beast before thee. We're reminded, therefore, of this message that we are living in the here and now that is true, but true justice, all ungodliness and sin will ultimately be dealt with on the last day. Peter reminds us of this. He says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming day of the Lord, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the element shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. So don't look for justice here. Look for it to come. And while you're looking for it and living for it, live holy lives. That's the message of Peter. But a third reason I think we can say as well is we ought to begin our sermon tonight in reflection of what John says at the beginning of this book, this revelation of Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. That we receive this message tonight is a blessing, not a curse. Unless we come to the end of our lives and appear in judgment outside of Christ. Well, I want to consider verses 11 to 15 with you that we have read together with this theme of standing before the great white throne I'm going to work our way through these verses, first with the idea of who is the judge that's pictured here by the Apostle John, second, who are the judged, and third, what is this judgment? So standing before the great white throne, the judge, the judged, and the judgment. We have before us, dear friends, a message that is solemn is searching, and yet I trust and hope will be an encouragement for us as well. John here, the apostle, is alone on this island in exile. 
And he is given this revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the Apostle John is given to see by visions and insight of the Holy Spirit what was to come as well as what has been. And throughout this book, you see unfolded seven times the history of the world from its creation till its culmination and judgment. And you see that repeated seven times in this book. The book, in many places, most places, is not to be taken literal. There are images and pictures presented for us of real and true things. And so we have the seven churches, we have the seven trumpets, the seven vials, and many times this number of seven. And when we come to Revelation 18 and 19, we hear about the destruction of Babylon, this world's system represented by Babylon. And then we read of the marriage feast, supper of the Lamb, and the second coming of Christ. That leads us immediately into chapter 20, and it begins there with, we read it together, of the binding of Satan for a thousand years. And this is a literal thousand years, it's figurative and symbolic of a period of time of perfection. And Christ has come and he has bound the devil. And so the time of Christ's first coming to his second coming in judgment is this period of a thousand years when Satan is bound. And then we read in verses 7 to 10 about this short period of time in which Satan will be loosed. And he will again deceive the nations and stir up the wicked hearts of men who who will arise and come as a fierce army set against the church, the people of of the living God, against the saints. But we read that just as this army of people and Satan behind them is ready to pounce on and destroy and devour the church and the people of God, God sends down fire from heaven and destroys them and sends Satan and the devil into the lake of fire and brimstone where they are tormented forever. This is now, in John's seeing of this vision, the time of judgment. And that brings us right to the end of verse 10 and the beginning of verse 11. And John says, and I saw, I saw a great white throne. It's great. And the word here is significant. It's because as we will see in the verses that follow, every eye shall see this throne. It is so great that it's a mega throne. It's a huge throne that no one can escape it. No one can miss. They will all have their eye fixed upon this throne. It's white. It speaks of perfection and holiness and justice of the one who sits upon this throne. Pure, undefiled, All that is good and right is found here in this white, great throne. Pure light, if you will, is emanating from this throne. And John says it's a throne. When we think of a throne, we think of a place of judgment, a place of ruling, a place of authority. And this is where the judge comes to sit and speak. If you've ever seen or been in a courtroom, you know that when everybody is in the courtroom and the judge is coming in, the bailiff asks everyone to rise. Everyone rises, the judge comes in in pomp and circumstance and sits down, and then everyone else is asked to sit down as well. Well, that's... That even pales in comparison to what we're talking about here in this passage. This is what John saw. He says a great, a tremendous, a a magnanimous white throne. Others have witnessed this. 
David in Psalm 7 says, He hath prepared a throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. Daniel saw this throne. Daniel 7. I beheld the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth before him. Thousands upon thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were open. And this throne is what John saw. Now, who was it? It wasn't an empty throne. So who was it that was sitting upon this throne? In the book of Revelation, John mentions the throne 40 times. It's significant. Most of the time, it talks about the throne and him who sat upon it. And we learn from those other references, often it's a reference to to God and his being and his wholeness and his unity. We read of the angels who surround the throne and they, they are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We read in Revelation 4 and 5 that John describing what he saw says there was lightning and thundering and voices and there were seven spirits which is the Holy Spirit as lamps of burning which go not out before the Lord and there was four beasts that he saw which had full of eyes. We see that in Ezekiel. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty as they cry out day and night, which was and is and is to come. And they gave him glory, and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him and cast their crowns before him. This is the living God who made you, who upholds us to this very hour, who gives you life and breath. He sits on the great white throne. But we need to say more. More than just it is the living God who sits on this throne. It is not simply the Father, it is also the Son. Jesus and the flesh. Revelation 3 we read, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame. And, he says, I am set down with my Father in His throne. So Christ is saying, I am sitting, as it were, with my Father in His throne, and I will gather my people to myself, and they will sit with me in my great white throne. In chapter 5, we read that the Lamb, which had been slain from the foundation of the world, stood in the midst of this throne. And from that point on, in the book of Revelation, this throne is referred to as the throne of God and of the Lamb, pointing us to Christ. And so we can see here in this reference, in this uh, sight of John, it is Jesus who is sitting in this throne. Paul says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He must be sitting on the throne. Jesus himself told us, For the Father judges no man, he hath committed all judgment to the Son. Again in Acts 17 we are told, God declares to men everywhere that they are to repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through the man he has ordained. And that man is obviously the one who is raised from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so who is the one who is sitting here on this throne? In glory 
before whom the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. It's the same one who walked among us, who looked people in the eye and spoke words of life, who touched lepers, who wore a crown of thorns, who was nailed to a tree, who died, entered the grave, and rose again. He sits on this great white throne. And what takes place next is breathtaking. John saw this throne, and then he says, the earth and the heavens fled away from the face of the one who sat upon the throne. You remember reading in Revelation when these last days and hours are upon us, when the earth is going through the birth pangs of the last moments of its existence, people are going to be crying out to the rocks and the hills in the face of Him who comes, cover us! Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And now we see that all of creation is fleeing away. We have been told in the Word that the creation came into existence by the Word of His power. It was there. And so by a word and a breath of His mouth, what was shall be consumed with a burning heat. The earth which was brought forth by this word of Christ is now fleeing away, rolled up as a scroll, burned with a tremendous fervent heat. Jesus, on the great white throne, is coming again to judge. As John sees this whole universe fleeing away. It's as if this great white throne fills everything. And yet there appears something else as John looks that isn't burnt up, that isn't dissolved and disappearing. He says, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. That's our second thought. It's not only the judge, Jesus, sitting on the great white throne, but there are those who are judged, those who are brought, as it were, into the very presence, in the very footstool of this throne. And what John is saying, he saw it all. He saw the sea of people. He saw them small and great, no matter what their position, no matter how old or how young, no matter whether they were presidents, rich or poor, a businessman or a common laborer. Over there, you see George Soros. Over there, President Biden. Over there, President Trump. You see Epstein. You see Hillary. You see Michael Jackson, you see, all the photographers who used to follow them all and take their pictures, and now there's nothing else in their view but the great white throne. But not just the great and famous, so-called in this world, but you and me and everyone who ever lived or shall live. In this moment, every eye will see him. Everyone who ever lived, there's Adam and Eve. And there's Noah and his family. There's Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and all of their children. Ishmael and his seed. Those who lived in the Netherlands. Those who are living in Canada. Those who live in India and China and Africa and Japan and Russia and Everywhere in this world, all are standing, John sees it, all are standing before this great white throne. And it doesn't matter 
how we experience death. If we were burned at the stake, or our body was laid into a grave, or we were shipwrecked at sea, everyone comes back into existence before the throne. I read a story of a man, this is going back a number of years, who, who knew what the scriptures say and he was going to prove that this was not true, that he would rise again. And so he had called people together to make an ironclad casket and with clamps and they were to be locked down and his body and the coffin were to be sealed away. No one was ever to open it again and he made that decree said to show that all that you are saying, that all will come out of their graves and all will come before the great white throne is not true. Well, it wasn't but a number of years later that this little acorn tree began to grow and find its way with its roots in between the cracks and crevices of this iron-clad sealed tomb to eventually break it open and expose what lie beneath. No one, nothing shall prevent this hour to come to pass. Those who have never heard of the living God, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of Capernaum, the city of Kalamazoo, all of us will appear before this throne. Jesus said it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Capernaum and those who heard his word and did not repent. There will be those before this throne who have heard this message and have not turned to Christ, who have sinned knowingly against the light they had in their conscience that convicted them, sinned against parents, against husbands, against wives, who sinned greatly, and some who haven't sinned perhaps in the estimation of others very much at all. The religious Pharisees there. The hard-hearted is there. The self-righteous. The Muslim. The atheist. But there's also going to be those and this multitude of people who as it were in their experience of their lives have stood here in some sense before as the word of God by the Holy Spirit came home with conviction to their heart. You are the man. You are the woman. You stand guilty before God, worthy of judgment, justly. who have understood something of this justice of God against their sin that we have so willfully committed against him. But these who have come to some sense and understanding of this truth by the Holy Spirit, he has led them to see that there is pardon and forgiveness and cleansing And so they no longer continue to live in this way. But by grace they have come to repent and come to flee to Christ. And they have died in trust, in confidence that he who sits upon this throne, they know. They have not bought into this world's system. They have not lived according to this world and all that it worships. Not received, as John will go on to say, the mark of the beast and worship the image. They have come to know the one who sits on the throne already now. 
do you begin to sense something of the weight, the magnitude of what John has seen? He says, all the people, even those in the sea, gave up the dead. And death and hell gave up those who had been given there. Small and great appear before the great white throne. You know, there's a number of stars and the way scientists describe them today is beyond description. It's beyond numbering. If you think of how many stars there are in, in the universe, it's, it's beyond description of how many, billions upon billions, just alone in the Milky Way, as you look up at the sky and you see this Milky Way color, this is because there's so many stars, and then there's so many more Milky Ways they, they have discovered, so many more galaxies. And if God knows all the stars by name, do we imagine he's going to lose track of one of the people who existed? Not at all. Everyone will appear before the great white throne. And I just want us to pause and consider what does that mean for us tonight? What have you done? What have you said? How have you, in your conscience, heard, received, ignored, tamped down the convictions that have come to you in the gospel. We can't escape this great white throne. And we see all the events around us and we are reminded of this truth is sooner upon us than we realize. But that's not all. Not only a great white throne and him who sits upon it being Jesus in glorified flesh, but all those who come, and all of us included, will be judged, but then we have the judgment that John mentions. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. There, there is attraction today in our world and has been for some time, I think, in regard to judgment. You read it in media coverage of um, these famous people who are going to court and what's the conclusion of the jury and the judge going to be and riots that follow. Our, our focus is on judgment. We think of Ghislaine Maxwell and what's going to happen with her and all that she's done with Epstein. We think of Gary Nasser, who a few a year or so ago was brought to judgment for all the abuse he had done to these gymnasts. We think of how that Judge Judy and all the judgment she does in probate court and so on, all is the fascination with judgment. And when we think of that, we think of all the lawyers that are involved. I just went to see a man in prison who was um, there because he had abused a number of women. And the person I was counseling wanted to confront him there uh, with what he had done after he had been sentenced. And he had a lawyer that had defended him in a very unjust way, I believe. And we think, too, of other countries where bribes have taken place and perverted judgment. Government officials who escape because of their office. But, dear friends, before this great white throne, there's no one who is going to be your advocate outside of Christ. There's going to be no lawyer to put a little twist on why you refused to take heed when you felt the prick in your conscience. After this judgment, there's no possibility of a mistrial 
to simply be tried again. There's no parole. There's no plea bargain. There's no higher appeal. The sentence is final. It's just because of what's written in the books. And we're not told exactly what these books are that shall be opened, but we're told that there are more than one. And the books shall be opened. Well, what are these books that John could be referring to? Well, there's other scripture that give us some inclination as to what they might be. The first and obvious one is the book, the book that we're reading from, the book of God's own word that he's given to us, the Old and the New Testament, the book of the law that is contained within it. It has the history of the world. It sets before us the revealed will of the one who sits on the throne. His commandments are told us. The way of escape in Jesus Christ is set before us in the gospel. This book will be opened. The way in which we can be saved is revealed in this book, a most glorious book, a book that will either bring us great comfort or testify against us. And this book tells us precisely how we will be judged. Even those who don't have this book, Paul tells us in Romans that everyone will be judged by, in a certain sense, that writing of the law of God upon their hearts, their conscience. We're also told there is a book of our members. David says in Psalm 139, 16, Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being imperfect, and in thy book all my members were written which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there were none of them. We could say in some respects, God knows everything down to the atom about you, about me. We used to use fingerprints to testify in court. And we've now come to DNA, much more accurate, almost 100% foolproof. But the one on the throne knows everything. Everything. Nothing is hid. Every member of our body. And what your members have done. What your hands did. What your mouth said. What your eyes saw. Where your feet went. He knows it all. There's also a book of remembrance we are told of all that is thought and done and said. Jesus said, every word, idle word we have spoken will be brought into judgment. And if every passing idle word that we've used in conversation, does it ever temper what we say? Every idle word our Lord said is going to be tested. It's going to be judged in this day of judgment. Book of Malachi tells us the Lord heard the words of those who feared his name as they spoke often to one another and a book of remembrance was written of these things. God takes delight in this truth that his people who gather together and speak of the ways of the Lord and speak of the goodness of the Lord. It's written as a remembrance, a book that will be opened. You know, our brains are a marvelous creation of God. They, they can record all the kinds of impressions that we have. Even as we are sitting here tonight, there's impressions of sounds, of who's going in and out of the room, exactly how the preacher said the word, what he said, the lights, the music, everything is recorded like a gigantic computer chip. That's not just what we are. It's just our physical creation. But in our souls... We recognize all these things. Every experience is recorded. The sight, the smell, the sensation, the pleasure, the pain, the words and actions, the thoughts. 
Scientists can go into people's brains and stimulate different parts and have them at times remember as if they were living in a different moment from before that they had experienced or taste something they weren't even eating that they had tasted before, smell something they had smelled before. Our brains are marvelous things. They've recorded every moment of our existence. And if a scientist does this, what does it mean to stand before the great white throne? And all of it, all of it, is brought to remembrance. Every thought, every word, every action, with penetrating clarity, times you felt convicted, I should do this. I should seek the Lord. And you fell asleep. I should pray. Oh, but I need to do this first. I should be more diligent in my devotions and you neglect. You're convicted tonight when I go home and I pour out my heart to God and something else happens. All the sins done in public. Every sin done in private. The book, John says, will be opened. Every unkind word, every kind word, every sinful pleasure, every curse word, every lie, every truth. How we've kept the Lord's day. How we've simply amused ourselves to death with endless hours of distraction and entertainment, and computers, and movies. It all comes back. If we pursued selfish pleasures, neglected our marriages, drank ourselves into foolishness, that day, all the skeletons come out of the closet, the books, are open. And you and I will be judged from the book. What's the judgment will take place? The sentence that's coming from the throne, the great white throne, will be terrifying to the wicked. It's an impartial, meaning it is true and just. It is right. There is no mistake. God doesn't play favorites. He judges by the book. But notice what John says. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Then verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the dead and death and hell were delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. Well, we're reformed. We believe we're saved by grace, not by works. So what does John mean? Often this is the perception of what John is saying here. That because somehow we have this impression, I think, that we're saved by grace. So then it doesn't matter in some respects how we then live. Certain people take this to the extreme. Works have nothing to do with salvation. We're said, we read here that John has said, we will be judged according to our works. How we live our lives then really doesn't matter. Do you think, do you believe that all that we have done and said and spoken and thought will be brought into judgment? 
That's what John is saying here. It's not just John. Let me remind you of what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be bad or good. Jesus in Matthew 16, 27 said, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. In the next and last chapter, two chapters from 20, Jesus, through John, says in verse 12, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. How you and I live is significant. It's of utmost importance. It's written in the book. And now the question we need to face is this. What's written about you, about me? What will be the sentence coming from the throne? There's only two possible outcomes. There's only two sentences emanating from the throne We're either judged worthy to enter in to eternal life and glory or the judgment is to be shut out forever from the presence of God. What do the books testify? If you have continued to reject the gospel, If you refuse to come to Jesus Christ, if you continue to live in your sin, if your deeds demonstrate, if your life is demonstrated that you do not have faith, John is saying this is a very solemn thing. If your name is not in the book of life, all that is recorded about us, all the sins that you have committed are going to rise up and testify against you. If all that could be said about us is that we lived a good life, you were liked by a lot of people, and you're not in Christ by faith, the one on the throne is not pleased You're not made worthy of eternal life in Christ. John is saying you will have your place with the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars. They will have their part in the lake of fire that burns and never ends. Where he says there's a worm in the conscience that shall never die, shall always accuse. The book will constantly be refreshed, as it were, in the memory. Why have you spurned the Christ? Why have you rejected his coming and pursuing the gospel? And you continue to pursue in selfish pleasures. You'll be banished from anything remotely good and confined to the place. And notice that description. It's, 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 it's I think, telling. The place prepared for the devil and his angels. God, God didn't prepare the place of hell for people. He prepared it for the devil and his angels. And those who follow him, those who turn from God will be finding their place there also. And dear friends, I can't go on to describe what this place 
is like. The anguish. The grinding of teeth and gnashing. And anger and bitterness and despair and hopelessness. Forever. And so don't take the words of this message lightly. These are the words of the one who sits on the great white throne. One day we will face him. But there are those whose end is not the second death, those who will never die. There's another group of people on this day that are appearing before the throne. Their works, too, will be made known. Their works are not the basis upon which they will be taken to glory. There is another book that John is speaking of here. And another book will be opened, which is the book of life. And the works of those whose names are written in the book of life, the works will be showing the evidence that they have indeed the Spirit of Christ living in them. They have heard the voice of the Son of God and lived. They have heard the call of the gospel and by the Spirit have been made alive and have turned to God by faith. They give evidence by their very lives that they have a right fear of the one who sits on the throne in their hearts. They have begun to be transformed by the renewing power of the Spirit even while they lived. It will be evident from the inner life and the outer life and the heart of such ones that they did not walk in unison with this world. What times they stumbled, they fell They had the remaining vestiges of flesh and sin that remained in them. But at the root and core of their being, they had been made alive in Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ washed them clean. They had turned, as Paul says to the Thessalonians, to God from their sin. They had fled when they heard the call of the gospel that penetrated their hearts and their understanding to the Savior to be saved. And now, having been redeemed, they sought to walk, though one more feebly than another, in the path of holiness. All those in this opening of the book of life were those who had been given of his father to the son as a reward for his work, his suffering, his death, his righteousness. It's not upon their works that God will say, good and faithful servant, But it is because of Christ who has redeemed them and bought them with a price. And now their lives will also show the evidence his work was in them. These works in and of themselves don't deserve God's favor. They are simply demonstrating that they had his favor. And that's the point of James. He's making this point. Are we saved by faith or by our works? Well, if you say by your faith, well, show me your works. That will testify of your faith. That's the same idea that's presented here. When the books are opened, what will your life demonstrate? What will it testify? You had no hope in yourself. You saw yourself as a lost, condemned, unworthy sinner who fled to Christ for pardon, who saw by faith that in Him there is salvation and life. Or did you reject and continue your own way, continue in your own sin and selfish pleasures? The evidence will be seen when their book is opened They have the evidences of repentance and faith that were the gifts of God and he rewards them now. Come, well done, good and faithful servant. They will stand amazed. Me? 
life? And that you have given a cup of cold water to the least of these? You have done it to me. In light of this passage, I I think Solomon and that story has relevance when he was brought this living child and a dead child by these two mothers. Solomon held up the living child and called for a sword and said, I'll cut this living child in two and you each can have half. What was he looking for? Was he looking for something from one of the mothers that would be a deed that could earn their child back? No, he was looking for something that would demonstrate this child belonged to this mother by birth. The love for this child would overshadow it. Say, no, give it to the other. And when the books are opened, When my life is open, when your life is opened, what's the testimony going to be? Is your trust, your confidence, your hope, your life, Christ, the one who sits on the throne? It won't be the first time you meet him. You've met him before. In his compassion, in his kindness, in his mercy, in his grace, as he found you, a poor, miserable, lost sinner, and redeemed you. And your heart was filled with gratitude. You want to live for him. You want to serve him. You want to die for him. And this book that's open will give evidence of that truth that's often hid even from ourselves. Isn't this what David means when he says in Psalm 56, Verse 8, thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? Those bitter tears, child of God, that that flow from our hearts at times and from our eyes. Bitterness about how we remain in ourselves so foolish, so prone to go astray. He knows them. They're recorded in the book. David's tears over his sin with Bathsheba, his groaning and tossing about his bed until the prophet came to confront him. It's all in the book. It's in this book, but it's in that book too. And we know that when God sees the lives of his people, even though they were not lived perfectly, they are covered in the righteousness of Christ. And when God looks upon them in the book of life, he sees them complete, perfect, whole, white. A son and a daughter, a brother and a sister. Because their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's because when we come to believe in Christ, it's the evidence that we have been made one with him. We are identified with Christ. And in that day, dear friend, when we see him, there'll be no more doubt and fear and question whether we are in that book. John the Apostle says, and we shall see him as he is and we shall be made like him. Dear believer, you too will appear before this great white throne, but the one who sits upon it is no stranger to you. We are known by name. An intimate name. No no identity theft in heaven. This book of life that John speaks of here is a book that is certain and sure. It's a book we can know already now if our names are there. What does Jesus tell his disciples? They had just been sent out and they come back to him and they're rejoicing and joyful because devils had been cast out. 
They had power to do miracles. And Jesus says what? Don't rejoice that all that has happened, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the mark that ultimately distinguishes the lost and the saved. We have it twice here. Verse 12, they're being judged from the book of life. And then verse 15, and whoever was not found written in the book of life. This is the ultimate place in which our names must be found. And we may know, Paul says this in Philippians 4 verse 3, and I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with my other fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. So how can we know? How can you know? Well, you read John 5 when you come home tonight. And Jesus says these words, verily, verily, I say to you, He that hears my words and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life. That's how we can know already now before that great day. Jesus continues to say in John 5, and those who hear the voice of the Son of God, though they were dead, they shall live now. And then standing before this great white throne, they have known what it was to die to themselves, to condemn themselves as sinners. And have found in Christ there is life for what he has done and he has accomplished. Is your name written by grace in the blood, signature as you will, In the book of life. I close with this story and illustration. It was a lady named Ruth Anna Metzger. And she was a professional singer. She was asked to sing at a wedding of a very wealthy man. And the wedding reception was to be held in a very prestigious reception hall. In the top two floors of Seattle's tallest skyscraper, Columbia Tower. At the start of the reception, the bride and groom approached this beautiful glass brass staircase that led to the top floor. And someone was there continuously marking off the names of those who entered in after a ribbon had been cut to open the way. May I have your name, please? The man asked. I'm Ruth Anna Metzger, and this is my husband, Roy, she said. He was looking for the M's. I'm not finding it. Could you spell it, please? She spelled her name slowly. But after searching the book, the man looked up and said, I'm sorry, but your name isn't there. There must be some mistake, she replied. I'm the singer. The man replied, it doesn't matter who or what you are. Without your name in the book, you cannot attend the banquet. He motioned to a waiter and said, show these people to the service elevator, please. The Metzgers followed the waiter past beautifully decorated tables laden with shrimp, smoked salmon, significant carved ice sculptures. And adjacent to the banquet area, the orchestra was preparing to perform. The waiter led them to the service elevator, ushered them in, and pushed G for garage, the parking lot. After driving for several miles, Roy reached over, put his hand on his wife's arm, and said, Sweetheart, what happened? He said, when the invitation arrived, I was busy. I never bothered to reply. Besides, I was the singer. Surely I could go to the reception without returning the RSVP. She started to weep, not only because she had missed this lavish banquet to which she had been invited, but suddenly it began to dawn on her of how many have been called to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And their name is not in the book. Let's pray. Our great God, what a solemn word we have. May we come to the realization there's nothing we can do to have our name written. Everything that we have done 
is a writing against us. But we are reminded of what the Apostle Paul says, that our Lord Jesus Christ has taken all these accusations written against us and has nailed them to his cross. And he has taken the death, the damnation, the curse, that we may be given eternal life. And so, Lord, use this word to call us from darkness to life, or use this word in the hearts of thy people to press us further into greater service and worship and adoration of him who gave his life that we might live. Go with us in this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.